I, I think just that metaphor of, of, of the descent into the self mm. and often accompanied by ego death and then that reascension, it just, it, it depends on like what lens you want to view it through because mm. sometimes that's just enlightenment. Sometimes that's this other pervasive idea that runs through this book of dying to death, you know, the secret right. of the Eleusinian mysteries. It's this idea of being broken down literally and figuratively until there is no self and then reemerging and not only with that appreciation of things, but just a new perspective on these different things. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by author Joshua Cutchin to discuss his books, Ecology of Souls, A New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal, Volumes 1 and 2. In a wide-ranging conversation, Joshua and I discuss how paranormal phenomena like Bigfoot and UFOs might be a new mythology pointing to new frontiers in the exploration of consciousness and reality. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Joshua Cutchin is an author and musician. He has written several books, including A Trojan Feast, The Food and Drink Offerings of Aliens, Fairies, and Sasquatch, The Brimstone Deceit, An In-Depth Examination of Supernatural Scents, Otherworldly Odors, and Monstrous Miasmas, and Thieves in the Night, A Brief History of Supernatural Child Abductions. He is also co-author with Timothy Renner of Where the Footprints End, Volumes 1 and Volumes 2. In addition to writing, Joshua Cutchin is a published composer and maintains an active performing and recording schedule as a tuba player based out of Atlanta, Georgia. He has appeared on dozens of programs, including Coast to Coast AM, and is regularly invited to speak at paranormal conferences about his books. Cutchin has also appeared on the hit History Channel television show, Ancient Aliens, and he is a recurring guest on the Where Did the Road Go podcast. He maintains an online presence at joshuacutchin.com. Joshua joins me today to discuss his most recent publication, Ecology of Souls, Volumes 1 and 2, A New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal. Joshua, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. This is a bit of a deviation from topics that I've done previously on the podcast, although I maintained that it fits and it fits very, very well. Your book, The Ecology of Souls, I mean, at the very cover of it, you know, it's got Terrence McKenna and Carl Jung, UFOs. It also addresses myth and shamanism and the paranormal. This checks all my boxes. (laughs) (laughs) There are a lot of Easter eggs. I kind of gave the artist free reign. His name is Johnny Decker Miller, and he does great work. And I, I basically said, you know, here are some of the themes plus you know byzantine terence mckenna go yeah. <laughs> and yeah, he yeah, came yeah. up with that and, and the other cover as well it's just you know endless easter eggs my I, my father was like is there like a list of of all the things that are in that cover and i said no i said they're just easter eggs and i'm still finding them myself to be honest with you yeah yeah but it's um uh, like i said it, it really uh, captured my attention and i'm not even i can't even remember how i discovered this book but as soon as i found them i was like i want to talk to this man 
I'm going to talk to this person. And I will be honest, I always like to have read the entire works of people before I speak to them. But this is a massive work. The two volumes is is massive. (laughs) It is. Um, So I'm a little bit short. I have read everything except for the last three chapters. Oh, uh, well, then you're you're very well prepared and probably more prepared than most people I talk to. So you're good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I... yeah, I have a, I just ended up compiling like a, a summary of chapters, much in the right. same way that you might see in those old folklore books where mm-hmm. they'd say what was in each chapter. And right. like, I've had to consult that myself because the thing's so darn big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I did read the afterward and the epilogue. So, and I, you know, did the scholar's trick of reading the first, like, you know, couple of paragraphs and the last paragraphs of the chapters yep, uh, yep. just to make sure I'm, I'm on board. So I, I really want to get into the book, but first i thought that it might be helpful to ask you to give a little bit of your background i'm curious how you got interested in the paranormal well the shortest answer is that i was just sort of always a monster kid you know i was always into ray harryhausen and you know the the predator franchise and the alien franchise and anything that was you know had great practical creature effects and that coupled with the fact that these topics were never really taboo in my household. And I guess the older I get, the more I realize that's sort of an anomaly to grow up in a Christian household where these topics were, you know, discussed openly. But, you know, I was primarily always interested in the Bigfoot phenomenon and would check out books at libraries and would buy books whenever I had the chance. And that sort of interest, you know, waxed and waned over the years. It wasn't until I started working my first desk job and had an hour commute there and then an hour commute back that I really started to rekindle a lot of these old passions of mine and started listening to paranormal podcasts. And it became apparent. I mean, you know how this is. You start you start yelling at your radio, you know, <laughs> or, you, or you start saying, well, why didn't you address this or that? So it sort of became apparent to me that I, I had things to say. And there were some, some personalities that I was listening to where I'm like, I really just want to have a conversation with these people. And that's how a lot of it started, you know, that and, and hating my desk job and wanting to do something different. <laughs> so yeah. And of course, once you start expressing an interest publicly in these topics, you kind of carry a certain stigma you know that, that's the that's the fact of the matter so it i tr- sort of transitioned from that desk job to just doing music and writing predominantly and nowadays i would probably identify more as a writer than a musician which is kind of a, okay. a real topsy-turvy thing for me but this is um the, the feedback that i get on my books is so positive that i had to sort of lean in the direction that i'm getting the most positive feedback not to say that I get negative feedback about my music, but yeah. I just play tuba, you know, so I have a pretty limited set of opportunities if it's not Mardi Gras and Oktoberfest. Right, right, right. Yeah. So did you, uh, since you had this interest in Bigfoot, did you grow up in an area where there had been Bigfoot sightings, traditional Bigfoot sightings? Not really. And, you know, I've poked around the area that I grew up, which was uh, in Lake Norman on North Carolina, or rather on Lake Norman in North Carolina. And, uh, you know, there really isn't a ton of stuff that was that was around there. I mean, in recent years, it's become apparent that Bigfoot can pretty much appear anywhere at damn well places. But, but you know, I, I have looked in the old, back through some of these old UFO publications, and there were some sightings around the time that the steam station was built on the, on the, on the lake. But, you know, it really was just something that seemed always kind of distant. And like a lot of people, I grew up under the assumption that Sasquatch was relegated to the Pacific Northwest. And, mm. You know, now with the with the benefit of hindsight, I do see these stories from you know people will say forty nine states, not including Hawaii, but I've found stories that sound suspiciously like Bigfoot from Hawaii as well. So, uh-huh. you know, it seems to be it seems to be happening everywhere, and 
that to me is yet another nail in the coffin of the idea that this is a flesh and blood creature, which isn't mm. to say I don't think that it's real, but I think that we're dealing with something a little bit more numinous than a lot of traditional cryptozoologists would suggest. Yeah, I, I grew up in, I, I rarely admit this, but I grew up in Ohio and we had book, Bigfoot sightings. Oh, a ton of them. Yeah. 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 So I knew that they were other than the Pacific Northwest, although they seem to be centered there and in California. And let me ask you, since they are seen everywhere, why do you think that that seems to rule out that they are the traditional, I guess, you know, yeah, no, man, I, you know, no, no, I hear you. Well, it, just, to me, it it kind of violates that Occam's razor principle of multiplying variables unnecessarily. I mean, we're not talking about everywhere just in the fifty states. We're talking about everywhere, like everywhere, everywhere. Right, 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 and right. the idea that so many different cultures would live alongside things that are practically identical, that have never been officially cataloged kind of pushes my believability. I can believe that with you know the Pacific Northwest. If you've ever been there, like it's. It's staggeringly huge in some areas and obviously right. in places like Alaska. But when you hear stories about, you know, I, for example, in, in where the footprints in with Tim Renner, we had some stories about Bigfoot that occurred in like parks in urban Chicago. And it's like, OK, I can't I can't buy the idea that there's there's a flesh and blood creature there. But you talk to these people and, you know, even the people who have the weird stories about Bigfoot tra transforming into balls of light and stuff. And, you know, very rarely do I detect deception. You know, I, I think that we overestimate the number of hoaxes in this field. I think that, you know, there are a lot of misidentifications maybe and some mental illness at play, but I think a significant number are also legitimate sightings that just defy our attempts to categorize them. So I'm kind of firmly in the paranormal Bigfoot camp at this point that these things exist, but they're not going to be bagged and tagged anytime soon. Right, right, right. Yeah. And the more I learn, the more I kind of lean towards that direction myself although when i go hike i'm always looking for them oh yeah and, and that's that's, that's, the, that's, the, well, that's the ironic thing right like i grew up with like you know all this great research about you know flesh and blood bigfoot and there's you know the first book to this day that i'll press into people's hand if they express an interest in the topic is jeff meldrum's sasquatch legend meets science because it's really well done and he's talking about dermal ridges and mid-tarsal breaks and things that are very specific to primate anatomy and it's really compelling but it kind of is a gateway to hearing all these stranger stories and these stranger stories are not as rare as a lot of people would like you to think. Yeah. Now I think this will actually fit into something that'll come up a little bit later in terms of the physical evidence of these things. I mean, because we have the castings of the footprints and if these aren't exclusively physical, how do you account for the physical footprints? I think that contention is rooted in something of a false dichotomy about the nature of reality. Okay. And, and I, 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 I the, the example that I always am quick to trot out is there were, there have been some Bigfoot researchers that I've talked to who say, well, you know, ghosts don't leave footprints. And I'm like, oh no, good sir. <laughs> or madam. If you study your early parapsychological literature, that was one of the first ways that people hunted for ghosts is they would spread talcum powder on the floor and wait for footprints right. to manifest and ghosts slam doors and, and I think we'd all agree that if ghosts exist, they're not physical in the sense that we ascribe them physical characteristics. So you have something that's non-physical interacting with the physical. You know, on top of that, you've got some of this really great research from folks like Dean Radin and Rupert Sheldrake and Daryl Bim that suggests that consciousness is non-local. And if, if psi abilities do exist, which is probably the single hill that I would die on <laughs> when talking about mm -hmm. these topics, if psi phenomena exist, then 
they also seem to interact with the physical world and they're an intangible phenomenon that interacts with the, with a tangible world. Now, you know, I can sort of go down that sort of proto-Jungian route and start talking about the imaginal versus the imaginary and things like that. But, you know, to keep it simple, those are the two examples that I use that, that I think we're sort of starting with faulty basic first principles logic on what real and unreal and physical and non-physical are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that one of my interests in the paranormal i mean i've always had an interest ever since i was a kid and you know always check out the 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 books on ghosts and bigfoot in the library and my mother always told me that i was going to grow up weird and probably good yeah (laughs) good yeah probably one of the few things she actually got right well there's this this jody foster quote that i love to trot out which is normal isn't something to aspire to it's something to avoid and i (laughs) i love that idea yeah yeah for sure And, uh, you know, the more I think about things and, you know, my background, I come from religious studies background and a philosophy background. And it seems to me that we need to take these things seriously in what we study. And I'm totally on board with the idea that we just have a wrong view or maybe an incomplete view of what ultimate reality is. And I think that this sort of phenomena is sort of pushing us to rethink things. I I think that's the great value of it. Yeah, I I would agree wholeheartedly. In fact, sometimes I wonder if that's not the entire purpose for these phenomena existing is to sort of undermine the sort of separation from this other realm. Like they exist Mm -hmm. simply to act as like a a thermostat in a house (laughs) to bring down the temperature of, of physicalism whenever it gets too strong. Yeah, and it's really unfortunate that for the most part, I can think of a few exceptions. For example, uh, Jeffrey Kripal, who you quote in your book, is mm-hmm. getting away with examining some of these things. Yeah. But one of the reasons that your book spoke to me so, you know, kind of screamed out to me is when I was a graduate student, I had just started, I approached the person who had been assigned to be my advisor and this was my very first semester. And she's like, oh, well, you know, do you have any ideas what you would like to do in a master's thesis? And I'm like, yes, I want to look at UFOs as a spiritual phenomena. And she stared at me for a few moments as if I had three heads and said, I think <laughs> you need to find something else to do. Ouch. Yeah. And which really frustrates me because now more and more people are doing this. And this was like 20 years ago. And I'm like, I could have had a career in this. You're absolutely right. I've got three or four friends who do their master's theses on, on, you know, the intersection of religion and UFO belief. And I, yeah. you know, that's, that's unfortunate. I mean, in some ways I'm, I'm happy to see that happening. I'm, it's sad for you, but it's, yeah. it's, I think, yeah, it's yeah, unfo- yeah. I think it's, I think it's fortunate for the, for the dialogue, because I just think we have to get away from the idea that ufo is synonymous with extraterrestrial and it's yeah. patently not but it's become that way and uh, not to say that there isn't intelligent life out there in the universe i totally think that there is but when you start peeling apart the onion of ufo contact on earth you know which is very rarely you know very rarely do we get accounts of astronauts encountering ufos in space right <laughs> like it's, mm-hmm. it's it seems to be an earthbound phenomenon in a lot of respects once you start peeling cr- apart that onion you, you start winding up with things like these profound synchronicities and uh, these spiritual revelations. And, you know, one of the genesis for ecology of souls, seeing the dead during periods of UFO contact. I mean, it's just, it, if we're dealing with little green scientists, they are effing weird (laughs) little green scientists. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, let, let's let's dig into the book of a little bit here. That's where we're heading anyway. Let's start with the title, The Ecology of Souls and or An Ecology of Souls. And my understanding is I think you got that from Terrence McKenna. Is that correct? That is correct. I I feel like that phrase, ecology of souls, does a lot of heavy lifting that mm-hmm. I thought would be a way to sort of get the ideas across in a sort of condensed form. And that's one of the things that he suggested is that, you know, whenever you slip into the DMT realm, which has a lot of the hallmarks of the NDE, I would argue, he suggested that, you know, one of the most conservative interpretations would be that perhaps you've crossed the border into an ecology of souls, not unlike the kind that the shamanic initiates would enter. And it's, you know, it's something that uh, I think is just elegant. I don't know if he if he coined that term. I suspect he did because I haven't found it attributed anywhere else, but that was... That was my sort of ode to, to St. Terry of McKenna. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I had someone else on the show, a very early podcast that he did his doctoral dissertation and its title was Ecologies of Soul. And I know that he was very familiar with McKenna and I don't know if that's where he got his title or not, but I believe his work was about contacting entities in the mm-hmm. psychedelic space. So my guess is he probably did get it from. Well, um, and you know, uh, even if he didn't originate that term, it wouldn't surprise me to see it sort of generate on its own. I mean, uh, it, it seems to be, I don't want to say that it's so accurate because I hesitate from, I, I hesitate to say that any of my work is accurate because it's all conjecture, but like, it feels to me as if it's a pretty accurate depiction of the way that there are niches on the other side and the way that this all somehow or another really is tied into this you know cycle of life that happens time and again i've i've received some some criticism which my my editor shared as well after we all of a sudden done and the dust cleared she doesn't settled she said you know it's not really about death and i'm like yeah i guess it's not <laughs> like it's about life and death i guess death right. is sort of the the hook to get you in there but yeah i think that that idea of an ecology with different things serving different roles also speaks to the idea that some of these things aren't good or bad. You know, it's one of my problems with the, with the Christian reductivism is that like, I think there are things that are just free agents and, you know, a shark is going to be a shark. It doesn't hate you. <laughs> it's just right. going to be a shark and it's fulfilling right. a role in an ecology as well. Yeah. Well, and there, I think that, you know, there's interpretation via, you know, everyone has lenses that they wear, that they interpret things through. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, some people are going to interpret everything just through that materialistic perspective. And some people are going to interpret things through that Christian perspective or a specific Christian perspective, because there's a lot of different Christian perspectives. Yes. yes. Um, Not a monolith. And- yeah. And I, and I see that sometimes I've seen, you know, videos on YouTube about, you know, equating the, you know, extraterrestrials and we'll just kind of use that term for mm-hmm. clarity. It's, it's, it's a placeholder. It's what you have yeah. to use. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But equating them with, you know, angels and demons more often than not from the Christian perspective, demons, yeah. uh, you know, but, it, but it, that's all just an interpretation of mm-hmm. something else that's weird. And when I read ecology, one of the things that I always stop to think of is that my understanding of ecology is the interconnections, but the ecology always occurs in an environment. Yes. And I think that, you know, you said that your publisher is like, well, this isn't really about death. Do you think it's fair to say that it's really about the environment that you're actually kind of parsing out an environment that this these ecology of souls exists within? 
Well, this is sort of a thread that I could have pulled on a little bit more, but as we alluded to earlier, it's such a big book. Like I had to draw the line in certain places, but I, I do think it, it, there's an environmental tinge to it because, you know, I come up against this idea of monism that seems to really pervade a lot of these, these encounters, especially the contact modalities of, you know, the near death experience and the, and the UFO experience, you know, you hear these phrases that keep on getting repeated, you know, you read the, I know that you've read it, but like, you know, for the edification of the audience, like you can find these stories and these, you know, UFO encounters where they're told, you know, the entity says, I am one with the one who is all, or it's the me within thee, or, you know, I am, I am, you know, I'm God. Well, what's your name? You know, buddy well what's your name god my name is buddy too it doesn't matter you know that sort of thing <laughs> and it sort of circles around to a bit of an animus perspective as well which you know, know that that term has a lot of baggage with associated with it but i think it's we have to, again we have to work with the terms that we're given like extraterrestrial mm -hmm. right but i think it sort of does come back around to that sort of animus perspective that everything is not only one but everything is also ensouled somehow and mm -hmm. i i personally resonate with that a great deal even though it certainly flies in the in the face of my own faith <laughs> um, i sort of have found my own way i suppose but yeah and so i think by merit of the fact that this is a human phenomenon and i'm not saying that these other intelligences don't exist, but I'm saying that like we sit at the center of these things and, you know, maybe that's because we only know about them through the human experience, but I think it's a little bit of a false dichotomy again, to say, you know, human versus just sort of the environment writ large. Mm -hmm. I think that those are kind of the same, same, same thing in a lot of respects. And, you know, that as far as I would even extend that would be the, the, you know, that law of hermeneutics as above so below like we are in an ecology within ourselves as well right right yeah when i was asking the question what i was thinking about is that the environment for this ecology of souls is something like consciousness or mind and not just mm -hmm. human consciousness or human mind but yeah i know what you yeah. mean almost in that from that idealist perspective or something along those lines yeah and yeah, yeah. i see that as being very closely associated with animism that you bring into the text and we're just talking about i think that what's close Close to that would be this idea of panpsychism that, you know, there's consciousness everywhere. And I think animism is a little bit different in the sense that animism is that there are like spirits everywhere and it's, you know, and the, and they, you know, I think the difference is that the sort of panpsychism is still connected to the material, whereas yes. animism doesn't have to be. I think that's, I think that's a fair distinction. I could not be pressed to say which one I, I resonate with more. Right. You know, I almost think that there's, <clears throat> there's sort of a, a, a bifurcated model where on the one side, it is sort of pure consciousness, but by merit of the fact that things have to manifest and exist in this realm, it, it might sort of shift a little bit and become a little bit more, a little bit more categorized, a little bit more siloed off and into respective thing into respective manifestations of that consciousness mm -hmm. but you know as as far as like a working model of that i don't have one <laughs> i think i think you're on the right track though yeah well it's a mystery and i think that's what's so wonderful about these things is that it is a mystery for us to kind of examine and i think if we don't if we just you know if people just you know kind of like oh that's just nonsense that that's to our detriment well not only that but also like I mean, this is going to sound kind of snarky, but also like 
the shallowest reading of this is almost worse than no reading of this, <laughs> by which I mean, like, you don't get these conversations when you're talking to somebody who's at, you know, MUFON, or when you're talking to someone who is, you know, a self-professed, you know, Area 51 scholar or something. It's all about documents and, you know, bodies mm -hmm. and, and retrieved metamaterials and stuff like that. And, you know, I find that interesting, but I find this a great deal more interesting where we're sort of drilling down at the nature of what it is to be like that that to mm -hmm. me is the real question i mean aliens <laughs> in the traditional sense are kind of a a footnote to this to this to these other ideas that crop up when you're approaching it from a, just a slightly different angle mm -hmm. yeah and it seems to me that there is and i agree that it's probably in the minority but I've seen a spiritual aspect to the UFO phenomenon. And I think that it's been there for a while, again, probably in the minority, you know, one, and I know you have an entire chapter devoted to Whitley Stryber, but when I proposed, you know, my thesis <laughs> and mm -hmm. that got rejected, one of the things I was pointing out was, well, just look at the titles of his books. You've got oh, communion, transformation, breakthrough. This is spiritual language right there. It really is. And and if you read sort of all of his books back to back, like, like I had to, you kind of, you kind of sense this pivot point, I guess, probably around confirmation or something, that book where he sort of starts to get a little bit more of a spiritual bent. And then he sort of slips into like full on spirituality with something like the key, which, mm. you know, even though I mean, I'm, I'm having a conversation with Whitley later, later this week, and I would probably say this to him too, like it reads like a channeled work, like it doesn't, mm. it doesn't read like the story that he tells in it and and you're right i think that there is sort of a a little bit more openness to some of these uh extended consciousness ideas in ufology i think that honestly if ufologists don't embrace some of these ideas they are sort of forced to disregard about 80 percent of their cases because even in cases where there isn't contact with a ufo occupant there seems to be some sort of exchange of information or thought between people and lights in the sky. I've heard so many times from people that they basically start commanding or asking the UFO to do things and it responds in tandem. So mm -hmm. I think that, I think that these ideas are, are embraced to a certain degree in the UFO community, but they always keep them at an arm's length and they always assume like, well, you know, tel telepathy will be explained by the materialist paradigm at some point. I'm like, no, you don't, you don't get this. Like our current understanding of physicalism doesn't have room for this. And this isn't me saying this. This is something that you find in the work of a lot of scientific philosophers who say that something like telepathy or other psi effects would essentially, essentially break the, the materialist paradigm. So if you're already functioning outside the constraints of that paradigm, then go ahead and go all in and explore a lot of different things, you know? But I think that they still want to keep it at arm's length because there's this almost, again, I'm going to get snarky, but there's almost this like childish, like, excitement for there to be aliens you know it's mm -hmm. almost they're they're so married to that idea that every all the logic flows out from that first assumption which i think is sort of faulty yeah well I, I don't you think that it's possible that instead of either or it could be and that it could be both you know oh absolutely and, and one of the things that i i really like to entertain when i want to have my cake and eat it too is is this idea that i flirt with in the book a little bit which is you know how would if remote viewing is a thing you know, people can extend their consciousness to view other other areas. How would a population or at least the psychically aware members of a population describe 
the remote viewer as it shows up viewing them. And, you mm-hmm. know, you get some hints of this in some of that old remote viewing literature from Stanford you know, Research Institute, which you can take or leave with a grain of salt. I get that. But there are some hints here and there that that some people who were being viewed were actually able to perceive that. So how did they perceive the viewer, you know, as, a, as an anomalous light in the sky or as, you know, heaven forbid, a structured craft? And so, yeah, I think there's both. And, uh, and and if you look at the UFO sightings in general, you've got things like misidentification playing in there, but you've also got misunderstood weather phenomenon, mm. things that we just haven't categorized, perhaps life forms and other sort of atmospheric effects. And part of it might be psi phenomena and part of it might be, for lack of a better term, spirits or ghosts. And part of it really might be, you know, little, little green men. Like, I'm not saying that's not the case either, but I'm not sure if I could be convinced that it it accounts for the lion's share of a lot of these sightings. Right. Well, and some of the sightings are just so, I mean, so bizarre that it's really difficult to maintain that physicalist perspective. But even though some of them are so bizarre, sometimes there is a physical aspect to them. I think my favorite, this was in Jacques Vallée's uh, Passport to Magonia about the fellow that got the pancakes. Yes, Joe uh, Simonton. Yeah, yep. I, I can never remember his name, but you know, and he had a pancake that he yeah. kept, you know. Which um, I think the last I heard that is at an Air Force Museum at Wright Patterson. There's just a tiny little display case next okay. to the cafeteria and, right. and Joe Simonton's pancakes in there. All right. Which, you know, I would love to find it a better home. But yeah, so it in sort of the model that if we're not dealing with 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 aliens. And again, I'm, I'm not sitting here saying that they're not aliens. I just want more ideas to get more traction. If we're not dealing with extraterrestrials, I, I tend to think of those sort of bits and pieces much in the same way that I do about the sort of meta material that we're constantly recovering or, or you know, retrieve flying saucer debris. I, I tend to frame those within the same context as saints relics or fairy flags that you'll find, you know, very few people who believe in something like fairies will say that, you know, this is literally a fairy flag and they're tiny people who, who once hoisted it on the battlefield as they battled geese or whatever. Right. But at the same time, it appears to be sort of a, a manifested memento, a sort of manifested souvenir from, from this other realm and whether or not we sort of manifest that with the collective unconscious or whether or not the other intelligence, if there is, you know, a discrete other intelligence than us at play, that, 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 you know, who knows, who knows which is the case, but I I tend to think of those like along those lines or like something like a ports that you see in some of these poltergeist cases. Right, right, right. And I like that you had mentioned that about the uh, ports and you also noted that sometimes or frequently that after someone has had an experience of a ufo that they then experience things like poltergeist activity there have been some studies that have been conducted by not only people on you know the woo side of the spectrum as much as i hate that term yeah. not, not only on that side of the spectrum but also people who do adhere to the extraterrestrial hypothesis and they've found that a shocking amount of people who have had these experiences not just, you know, intense firsthand alien abductions, but also experiences where they see a craft at a distance in the sky, in the sky will have poltergeist phenomena cropping up in the wake of it, which, you know, you can interpret that one of two ways. You can say, you know, ghosts, or you could say that there's some sort of expansion of consciousness that you see, you know, residual spontaneous psychokinesis or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, we we just don't understand consciousness, I think. <laughs> no, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think yeah. that goes hand in hand with the fact that we don't mm. understand reality. Like we have some 
we don't even have laws. I think we just have some very strong <laughs> guidelines by which reality yeah. behaves. Yeah, I think it was the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead that referred to them as habits <laughs> instead of laws. Yeah. yeah, that we should think about the, the habits. And, you know, and I know that there's also this idea of, I know some people are working with trying to psychically connect with the aliens, but it seems to me that they're still kind of grounded in a physicalist perspective. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, you mentioned one of the people that's really associated with it. Yes. <laughs> and and I, I'm always a little bit concerned personally about it because it seems to be more of a profit motive than many other things. You know, you can buy the app for like 1999. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I have a bit of firsthand experience with this actually. As of a couple of months ago, I was at a conference and they decided to have one of these calling down the UFO events, a CE5. And, you know, I, I really did try to open myself up as much as I could to the possibility and set aside all my biases and my pessimism, not <laughs> because, you know, I want something to happen. I would love to call down a UFO with my, with my mind. Right. And it was just dead as a doornail. The whole experience mm -hmm. was dead as a doornail. Having said that, I have talked to far too many people who have also been skeptical of those methods and the person who has been hawking those methods. And they've said, you know, I can't believe it, but we saw some strange stuff in the sky, you know, and we had our apps open that said where the iridium flares were and where the satellites were and where the flights were. And this was not showing up on any of that. And it moved at a 90 degree angle in the sky. And I don't know what it was. Mm -hmm. And I really don't know what to do with that. You know, I, I, I think that honestly it's, it's as valid an approach as blasting, radio transmissions into space because again until we know what this is and we still don't know what this is contrary to what a lot of people say i think that all approaches should be on the table if we're trying right. to you know reach out to this this intelligence and even again if it is extraterrestrials then the same laws that we play by here on this planet should be applicable wherever they are as well and that would include things like being able to reach out with our consciousness and being able to engage in telepathy with them i I have a little bit of a, again, it's that issue of like, I see these people doing this and it, you know, having seen it firsthand now, it so much resembles an outdoor seance, you know, it so much resembles an outdoor spiritual seance and, it, and so much of ufology in general, but especially the strand of, of ufology that, you know, some people would uncharitably categorize as the new age. So much of it is, is tied to these theosophical ideas and these spiritualist ideas and yet there's this insistence that it's extraterrestrials. I'm like, well, you realize what you realize what pool you're playing in, right? Like you're you're completely engaging with these in a way that would have been interpreted completely different 200 years ago. So, right. Yeah, and it that just takes us right back to the interpretation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, understanding these things. And you know, it's I think that the connection is a fair one in terms of you know, well, are these, you know, aliens from Zeta Reticuli or the Ascended Masters, <laughs> you know, from the Theosophists and, you know, even I think Aleister Crowley, you know, his channeled work, he mm -hmm. actually drew a picture of the, and I always forget the <laughs> yeah. name, but it Lamb. Looks, Lamb. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it looks like one of the well, stereotypical gray aliens. It, and my good friend, Mike Clellan has made a point that there's some shading at the top of Lamb's head that sort of looks like the placement of the, where you'd expect the eyes on a traditional gray alien nowadays you know lamb's yeah. actual eyes are sort of at the bottom but you can actually see sort of the, the vaguest in the shape of that so you know where i land now is that it's it's something right yeah we're yeah. not we're not we're not grasping at shadows like it's something this is not yeah. 
completely pareidolia. It's something, and and I think that we've interpreted it in a lot of different ways through the years. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm very much of the belief you alluded to passport to Magonia. I'm very much of the belief that this is the same thing that was the fairy faith. I used to hedge my bets on that and sort of say, well, maybe so, maybe not, but. I've just found too many similarities beyond even what Valet outlined. And so I think that, you know, depending on what culture you're in, you're going to view it differently. So who knows, you know, maybe if we do sort of reach this singularity that a lot of the transhumanists keep on crowing about, maybe in, you know, 200 years time, the extraterrestrial hypothesis will have gone by the wayside and be supplanted by the idea that these are future races of human beings, you know, coming mm. back to us. And that might be the dominant, you know, paradigm of the day. And that's an idea actually that I'm quite sympathetic to as well, that I just didn't have time to talk about in the book <laughs> because right, it was just right. so big. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, and I've thought about that as well is that, you know, these are, you know, human evolution from the future it fit, it checks a lot of boxes man it checks mm -hmm. a lot of boxes i mean you know i i really wanted to talk about time because yeah. i'm convinced that that not only do we perceive time in a faulty manner but i'm convinced that it lies at the heart of a lot of these issues part of it was a length issue for ecology of souls and part of it was yeah. the fact that i just go cross-eyed man like yeah. i get <laughs> i get really wrapped up in some basic stuff like grandfather paradoxes then i just right. can't find my way out or like you know retro causality there's this great book by eric wargo on on yeah. retro causality and it's just like I, I don't even know where to start with this i'm just yeah. not, i'm literally just not smart enough to handle it i guess <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I had Eric on the show. It was great to speak with. And I just recently had a guest, uh, Bernard Beitman, who wrote on meaningful coincidences uh -huh. and kind of challenged Eric Wargo a little bit because Eric seems to lump all kinds of synchronicities as a kind of precognition. And I think some of them are, but I don't think that all of them are. Well, you know, you know, that reminds me of is it's in, in like, I've had some conversations with Eric, we've met a couple of times and there are some things that I disagree with as well, but that, that sort of perspective sort of reminds me of one of the old SRI guys whom I heard in a conversation who was saying that near death experiences didn't definitively prove, you know, the, the life after death or anything like that. They might instead just indicate that people had precognition of of the experiences that happened in the hospital room while they were dying. And, and I get that. And you have to say that just like in, you know, magical practice, you have to say, you, you'll never be able to tell whether or not spirits are, you know, an epiphenomena of the self or are discrete entities under their own selves. I get that. It, I, I think to, to say that that's the only interpretation is a little bit narrow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And since I mentioned synchronicities, isn't that also a feature of UFO experiences that people will quite frequently have a lot of synchronous experiences after the fact? A hundred percent. And I mean, not a hundred percent of cases, but a hundred percent it is something that happens. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just like with the poltergeist stuff, it's, it's kind of an unspoken reality that you'll find that people do have these, these sort of synchronicities manifest in their lives. And not only that, they seem to be with the UFO experience more contagious than with the other contact modalities I've found. Whereas, you know, it can just be in the presence of someone who has had this contact and there's sort of a bleed over effect that you'll notice in your own life if you spend enough contact with time, you know, in their presence. And also, you know, just people having some vanishingly short sightings that then just sort of notice all these synchronicities piling up. And some of them are, you know, perception bias, obviously, but some of them just really push the limits of what can be accounted for through you know random chance and at the same time because i have some really shocking synchronicities in my life as well and i tell them to people and they kind of just shrug and i think that synchronicities are 
a lot like dreams, you know, in the way that mm-hmm. like, I have a cool dream I want to share with you. And like half the people you talk about do not care you know, because right. it's not that personal experience. So I think that in a lot of the ways that dreams are sort of tailor made for us and seem to be speaking for us and sort of seem to be designed for us, synchronicities might very well be the same thing. And they might not seem as profound to other people, not because they're not profound, but because they're just not engineered for someone else. You yeah. had to be there, you know? Yeah. And if this, you know, UFO phenomena and even with the Fae and poltergeist and, you know, the whole, <laughs> the whole shebang here, you know, I know that there is this idea that there's a trickster element to all of this. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that you discuss this a little bit. Doesn't that also imply in a sense that there's a greater intelligence at work that's trying to catch our attention for some reason? I, I suppose that the, the first thing to define would be, you know, what you think archetypes are, right? I mean, I I kind of, I wouldn't describe them as like epiphenomena, but I do think they sort of happen naturally and they're almost sort of a natural outgrowth of certain roles and certain, certain hierarchies that we find ourselves embedded in. I mean, you know, I, I think that, you know, a lot of people who go into the hospitality business don't expect to embody the mother archetype, but they do nonetheless. So the question is, therefore, if, if you know, a lot of this phenomena seems to be trickster phenomena in the paranormal, is that, well, first of all, I don't think there's a capital T trickster, right? Like <laughs> some people will right, talk right, about this right. and like the trickster, it's the trickster. Yeah. Well, no, I don't think that's what's at play at all. And I don't think if you read some of the scholarship, like from George P. Hansen, I don't think that's what he's getting at either. It's just the idea that whatever dwells in this sort of interstitial liminal realm sort of ends up having these manifestations of tricksterism sort of come out naturally Mm. at the same time you know i can't rule out the fact that these are just tried and true methods of something that exists on the other side and you know that they just sort of apply a set of trickster principles you know i'm not really sure but yeah i really do think it's it's contingent upon whether or not you think the archetypes are discrete or whether or not they sort of come about naturally yeah well and i think that jung uh, if i understand correctly you know and he wrote about you know flying saucers and he saw them as a new sort of mythology and my understanding is is that he thought that these symbolic forms you know that are rooted in the archetypes would sort of erupt out of the human unconscious Mm -hmm. sort of spontaneously and i don't think that he was referring to the archetypes you know with you know capital a's right but that there is this function of a kind of global consciousness of sorts and i think that it can then manifest in a variety of ways yes and i and i i would you know there's something just that's the thing that I always find so compelling about some of these archetype ideas is that they, they do manifest without cultural transmission. So, mm. you know, and, and a lot of people sort of get really sort of uh, upset when I, when I suggest that, you know, these might be, you know, archetypal, but like, I think that the, the collective unconscious being a real thing that's capable of such miraculous manifestations is just as, astounding as as you know this these being a separate intelligence from us but yeah i mean that was that was pretty much sort of young's interpret young's interpretation and and i think that 
if it could happen with something like the ufo which you know he also compared to being like you know a symbol of totality and you mm-hmm. know the, the mandala and whatnot i think that it stands to reason that you know these other sort of archetypes might have a degree of physical manifestation in and of themselves i think that's you know if, if in for a penny in for a pound i guess right yeah yeah yeah, well, and, you know, that was one of my ideas when I was, you know, proposing this thesis is I was trying, largely taking a Jungian perspective, and I was mm-hmm. noticing that my focus was more on sort of like Greek myth. I was noticing connections, and I think one that you bring up in the book is Hermes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and Hermes is a trickster figure. But one of the things that I was looking at in terms of Hermes was the cattle mutilations. Yes. And because one of the very first things that Hermes does is he steals Apollo's cattle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so, so I like to say that there are two, two books that really have informed a lot of my thinking. And one of them is Valet's Passport to Magonia. And the other one is Hanson's The Trickster and the Paranormal. And I like to say that in the background of those two books, there are some things that were left on the table. And specifically, I, what I mean is that in the former case, Valet did a great job of showing how a lot of this modern UFO mythology seems to echo the fairy faith of the past. But, you know, the question is never asked, well, what would a 13th century passport to Magonia look like? It would probably be saying, oh, look, this fairy stuff looks a lot like the way that we used to think of our dead, right? So that's one of the mm-hmm. things that sort of haunts the background of that. What's haunting in the background of the trickster and the paranormal is Hansen makes a lot of connections to as we've been alluding to trickster phenomena in these, uh, in these different paranormal manifestations. But I think there is something else that you can look at that something else you can find in that, which is that a lot of these tricksters share attributes with these psychopomps mm-hmm. and Hermes being, you know, that sort of psychopomp and honestly King psychopomp, if you really want to say, we really want to call them that, you know, if anybody's unaware psychopomps are these figures that lead you over the threshold of death, maybe even serve in sort of a spiritual mentorship capacity through large life transitions but they're another one of these universal motifs an archetype in and of themselves arguably and hermes is of course of course you know not only the the master of boundaries and things like that which is a very tricksterish thing it's also a very psychopomp thing and hermes has sort of become this symbol for you know psychological studies as well i mean i i i think that you know when people think of psychopomps, they think of the Grim Reaper or they think of, you know, maybe some certain animals or they'll think of Anubis. But uh, I think Hermes is just one that just combines so much of this different imagery into one figure. And uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. The There's the cattle mutilation narrative with him and Apollo's cattle right off the bat, which, you know, sounds a lot like a contemporary cattle mutilation that might be attributed to UFOs or cryptids or, you know, at one point yeah. the fairies as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing that I connected with Hermes was government secrecy, that everything was hermetically sealed. <laughs> well, and, and, and you know, that's true. That's true. The other thing that blew my mind that I've never really considered was that, you know, there's there's a line of, I mean, so this might kind of sound, sound fart sniffy to a lot of folks, but I'm going to go for it, you know, that certain symbols embody other ideas, right? So in other words, what I, I've gotten to the point where I look at UFOs and horses and the sun as all kind of being the same thing because there's the sun worship with the horse and the horse also, you know, pull the chariot of the sun along and the sun is a glowing circular disc in the sky. That's an identified flying object, right? But also, you know, psychopomp motifs in and of themselves. And I have read, and I was very surprised to find that there's sort of a, a similar idea that thinks of 
the helicopter is sort of being an embodiment of Hermes as well. And mm-hmm. what do we also see around these cattle mutilations? We see these flying black helicopters everywhere. Right, 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 right. Yeah. What, what did you write in the book that a helicopter is a plane trying not to fall apart? <laughs> yeah, I love that. That, was, that wasn't my quote. I love that quote, though. I love that quote, though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed that one too. But yeah, I saw it also in terms of the messages because I I always loved the contactees from the 50s. And, you know, I think that right there, there's, you know, when you look at sort of the history of this, there seems to be a prophetic aspect um, Mm -hmm. that we find in many of the traditions. But the messages seem to reflect current concerned so like back Mm -hmm. in the 50s it was stop all the nuclear weapons yep yep. and now it's all environmental yeah yeah and 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 i think it's interesting like so yeah i love the contactees too like i don't necessarily always know what to do with them you know (laughs) i I kind of have the suspicion that something genuine happened to a lot of them and then they Mm -hmm. sort of got pressure to continue the ruse much in the same way that people who had poltergeist activity sort of had something genuine happen to them and were later caught faking it's mm-hmm. a very handsome idea the idea that the phenomena self-negates and witnesses sort of self-negate but you're right there's always these messages of of environmentalism and I, I kind of find it interesting that for so long if you compare it against the sort of rise of the alien abduction narrative it's almost like a good cop bad cop thing <laughs> you mm-hmm. know the contactees and, and the space brothers and sisters that they were in contact with seemed to be told these positive me- messages and they were you know invited aboard the craft and and they were given lovely things to eat and drink and they were sort of pampered and they were saying hey you know you should probably get a handle on your act as human beings and now it's just the, the polar opposite in a lot of these cases i mean there's still some very positive alien abduction experiences but like we think of the 70s and 80s and 90s alien abduction experience was very much under duress you know they strap you down they force feed you something in a lot of cases and they tell you you know you need to do this or everybody's going to die you know it's very right, right, it's right, very right. no frills and i think it's kind of interesting you know, to look at that again and sort of hold that up against the messages that people receive under the influence of certain entheogens, you know, ayahuasca mm-hmm. versus psilocybin or right. something, or, you know, or, or something else, or, you know, even if you want to go back to the fairy faith again, the Sealy and Unsealy courts of Scottish folklore. I mean, it just, there seems to be this sort of undercurrent of good cop, bad cop running through all this stuff. Mm, yeah, that's quite fascinating. Let's go back for a moment. We were talking about the psychopomps and then I kind of let us down another path. Oh, you're uh, fine. Let's, yeah, but let's go back to the psychopomps because I think there's something there in the sense of this, the, 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 the UFO experience as a kind of initiation because psychopomps are taking us into the underworld. Mm-hmm. And one of the key themes that's running through the two volumes of this book, your books here, is the the shamanic and the shamanic initiation which always includes kind of going into an underworld a dismemberment often and a being constituted reconstituted yeah yeah, yeah. and then a return and you know when i teach this in class i always say well you know the shamanic initiation is the model for all initiations and it seems like there's something that's happening here with the people who are having these kinds of experiences that seems to be very shamanic that connects to this idea of a psychopomp. Yeah. I, I think that, I mean, obviously I agree with you because I wrote the damn book, right. But, but but I I think just that metaphor of of the descent into the self Mm. and often accompanied by ego death and then that reascension, it just, it, 
it depends on like what lens you want to view it through because mm. sometimes that's just enlightenment sometimes that's this other pervasive idea that runs through this book of dying to death you know the secret right. of the eleusinian mysteries it's this idea of being broken down literally and figuratively until there is no self and then re-emerging and not only with that appreciation of things but just a new perspective on these different things Part of what really sort of hooked me in with the psychopomp connections to the to the UFO phenomenon is that the UFO phenomenon is just so transportation focused, right? Mm. It's it's like it's the transportation mo- motif of our times, and uh, you know, as I allude to in the book, like if it's transportation to some far flung location that we can't access, it's essentially a psychopomp boat to the other world in a lot of ways. And the idea that within this other realm that isn't, is inaccessible, there is knowledge to be had. There is truth to be had. There is honestly, quite frankly, peace to be had that you can return from that under the right set of conditions is something that you can see in all these different traditions. You find this among the incidents of people who are basically at peace after having their sometimes harrowing alien abduction experiences. You find this in people who have significantly you know, spiritual psychedelic trips. You find this in people who have the near-death experiences. I mean, one of the things that I found really interesting about the near-death experiences that I don't think I'd really seen touched on too much was that, you know, in a lot of these classical mythologies, you would be reincarnated. And in order to reincarnate without memories of your former lives, you would have to either travel over the plains of oblivion or drink a broth of an oblivion, lethe. And if you were born and you became a seer, it was said that you had refused that drink. And I find it really interesting to see that, and this might be sort of a self-selecting data point, but the people who remember their near-death experiences are often the ones who have these sort of extended consciousness effects manifest in their lives so at least on a metaphorical level did they not drink of that that broth of oblivion when they were taken over there and that's why they came back with these increased abilities i don't know but you can certainly say the same thing about a lot of these other different contact modalities and uh, yeah if if tricksters are all about transitions and luminality and they're the gods and goddesses of the threshold then what bigger threshold is there than this this demarcation between life and death yeah yeah. And, you know, it, it occurs to me that this idea of vehicles is something that is very frequent in a lot of mythologies, not necessarily as, you know, UFOs, but the chariot is something that comes to mind that the chariot is not necessarily how you travel, but as representative of the soul in many ways, that the vehicle itself is the soul. Well, and, you know, there is that line of thought that in some cases, pushing yourself into these altered states of consciousness is honestly a way to sort of hold on to the road <laughs> as you make that transition, right? right. I mean, you know, uh, there, I know that was something that, that Terrence talked about a lot. And I know that there are some lines of thought surrounding transcendental meditation, that it's all about sort of being prepared when, once that moment happens to hold on to yourself and to know where to go and to know how to go and to know you know, to, to not fall off of the golden path, as it were, which is terrifying because I'm not good at meditating, but who knows, maybe the universe is a little bit more forgiving than that. But yeah, it's, it's this idea of like, you know, be able to keep your ish together once, once that final <laughs> transition happens. Right. 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 Well, you know, and I, I just have to say that, you know, this is why meditation is a practice. You have to practice at it. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. See, see, so, I'm, a, I'm a musician. I want to practice the lick until I get it done. And then I, yeah. and then I know the lick and then I'm done. Right. No, yeah, that one, that yeah. one. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting. And you have to forgive me if it's in the in the book, or I should keep speaking in the plural in the books, and I have forgotten. But is did you address that in the sense of people having these sorts of or the possibility of someone having an experience with, you know, the aliens in like states of meditation? I think I might allude to it a little bit, but I sort of dance around that mostly. And I think the manner in which I dance around it mostly is saying, oh yeah, you know, all the stuff I've said about altered states of consciousness. Yeah. Also meditation. (laughs) So I think, I, I think I sort of, sort of rounded the corner off there a little bit, but yeah. Yeah. Well, and there is a connection with these altered states. I, you know, just from personal experience, one of the forms, a common form of some of the extraterrestrials, I mean, there's always the the grays, you know, I think that's the most common one in our culture right now, but then there are these Nordic ones, mm-hmm. but the mantids. Yeah. And yep. I've, I've had an experience of the mantid. Oh, wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Not, not as an abduction or anything. Right. Um, but in, but in- it, yeah, it was with psilocybin mushrooms. Okay. And there was the, a mantid and it was just like a vision. I, I'm mm. not saying that I saw it in my room, but it was very <laughs> it clear. It came up and shaked your hand. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. very clear. And I'm like, oh, okay. And this was many, 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 many years ago. But I think, you know, given that, and then kind of understanding that this is sometimes seen as an alien form, it makes me think that there is a connection between, you know, consciousness, the unconscious and mm-hmm. altered states of consciousness. No, I, I, I completely agree. And, and that's one of my problems with a lot of the, so rarely do we get a story of an alien in some of these abduction stories that is truly alien. Like, you know, it's always right. kind of roughly humanoid, which, you know, if you want to go down that Xeno biological route, like we're dealing with other atmospheres and other gravity you know other other types of gravity and just all sorts of other considerations that suspect that our similarities would be very very few and far between and then a lot of these you know i mean so many of these other aliens are basically therianthropes they're insect people or they're reptile people and it's like okay well earth-based life forms coming from another planet okay well i guess so but the thing is as you alluded to like the the quality of these things those 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 shared entities that you keep popping up are not constrained to any one of these contact modalities they do appear in the meditative experience they do appear in some of these symbolic or literal death and rebirths of shamanic initiates they do appear in ndes and they do appear in the ufo thing so what does that mean like what do we do with that i think is really the question and there's because i think there's obviously a connection there yeah yeah and you know the one thing that kind of jumped out at me or a question that jumped out at me reading this was, you know, if this is a new mythology, it's interesting. And I think it, and maybe I'm wrong here, but it doesn't seem to follow what Joseph Campbell called the mono myth. I mean, unless you want to say like that hero's journey is that initiation. Um, uh, yeah, I pay but, a little. I pay a little bit of lip service to Campbell, but you're right. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't seem to map on as tightly as he, as he, as his work would suggest. That's for sure. Yeah, and I, I don't actually agree with him that every myth is a hero's journey. Um, I mean, yeah, there's, there's plenty of criticism to be, to be leveled in that direction. <laughs> and you know, in my experience, because I've, yeah, I, in my own personal experience dealing with different things, it's always been like a really compressed version of the monomyth, right? You can't, I don't mm. map it onto my own life. I map it onto like. A, a time in my life when certain things happen. So yeah, it, it seems like maybe 
the Campbellian approach is not the most useful when applied to some of these other other extended consciousness. Yeah. Problems. Yeah. Well, it seems to me that the the approach that you're taking and suggesting is incredibly valuable from a sort of a phenomenological perspective. And that's what I always try to do is I would say, you know, look, I, I, I'm not approaching this as this is absolutely real or, you know, garbage or what have you, but that people are claiming to have had an experience. So mm -hmm. let's look at these experiences. But it I also, think, oh, sorry. Um, no, 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 <laughs> I, I thought no. you were, I thought you were, you were pausing for me. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. You can, you can respond to that if you want. Yeah. No, finish your thought. I want to hear it. Oh, no, I don't even remember. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I mean, I guess I just, after looking at this for this long, like you're not going to, if you're approaching this or any of these topics as a binary, you're just destined for heartbreak. I mean, if you're looking at it, like, are there aliens or not? Is there Bigfoot or not? you know did fairies actually exist or not you're because number one i would say the far and away the the most likely outcome is that you're not going to find out right mm. and if you do find out you're probably not going to find out that it's literally true in the way that you want it to be right if for some reason it's proved beyond a shadow of a doubt but even if you're if you're taking that phenomenological approach and you are looking at the way that these things manifest in people's lives and the roles they play in people's lives and how tailor-made to the experiencer they are even if there aren't any objective facts behind the alien experience the bigfoot the bigfoot sightings the fairy stuff even if that's all a bunch of bunk you've at least learned something about the human condition along the way mm -hmm. and i think that's sorely lacking in a lot of examination of these topics yeah well, it seems, I mean, and maybe, you know, I'm not as versed in this as you are, but it does seem that this kind of way of examining is becoming a little bit more accepted. And I'm starting to see more and more people within paranormal research saying, you know, look, you know, the UFO folks have to start talking to the Bigfoot folks and they have to start talking to the ghost hunters. And it seems like it's moving in a more comprehensive i don't know if that's the word i want well open-minded direction yeah, honestly yeah. i mean you know we, we think of people who who believe quote unquote in bigfoot and aliens as being like kind of crazy and having their minds made up or rather not being or as being open-minded rather but in truth a lot of them are really closed-minded about their own pet theory and mm. i think that it's slowly becoming apparent that for the normies we all live in glass houses <laughs> you know we're all equally crazy and that's not to say that everything has its has the same amount of value because it doesn't because i've heard some mm. stuff that's just like no there's no way that is a, a worthwhile interpretation of this but but i do think that there's a lot of opening it up you know something that tim and i found when we released where the footprints end is that we found out that that book would have fallen like a lead balloon about 15 years ago. But for whatever reason, the dialogue has opened up where people are actually willing to say, oh, there are some strange things associated with the Bigfoot phenomenon. You know, specifically, I'm thinking about the balls of light. There is this experience that I've noted that was sort of alluded to by my friend, Mike Clellan, who said, once you get the ufologists to the bar after their lecture and you get a couple of drinks in them, and then you ask them about their synchronicities, they open up about it. And that seems to be the case with the Bigfoot folks, too. Once you get them to loosen up a little bit, they'll say, oh, well, you know, this one time we were out there and it was this area that has a lot of Bigfoot activity, but 
we didn't see Bigfoot, but we did see these ghost lights. You know, we did have, you know, we did catch an EVP on our <laughs> recording equipment or whatever. And obviously that doesn't prove that these things are connected, but it does, I think it suggests that there might be a connection. So all that to say that, yes, these things are opening up, but with, with a real caveat, which is that I saw the dialogue expand in a really open-minded fashion until around the time of that New York Times story dropped. And then mm. it was all back to propulsion systems and technology and anti-gravity. And it's like, okay, well, was this, was this deliberately seeded to take our eyes off the prize? I kind of wonder that. I don't normally engage yeah. in that sort of conspiratorial thinking, but it does seem to me that as these things were opening up a great deal, there was a shift back to that. Now, having said that, a lot of the scholarship that you and I follow, the work of Jeffrey Kripal and Diana Walsh-Basulka, a lot of that scholarship has continued unabated. So I think if nothing else, that you know, New York Times article did allow the discussion to slip into the academy and to get a foothold in there. And you know, God bless the academics for taking this in sort of a different direction than the rank and file UFO folks do, because I think that there's a lot of gold to be mined there. Yeah, well, what comes to mind as well is that it it seems like the ufologist, you know, MUFON or your ghost hunters, they're going to have to add to how they investigate things, you know, because, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and, and I imagine that some people are like, but I don't know how, how am I going to... Um, change the investigation. And I'm not saying get rid of all the physical things right. that you're looking at, but do you have any uh, suggestions on or ideas of how investigating paranormal phenomena would change or should well, this, change? This is one of the things that I, lo I did love about the CE5 that I was participating in is that they said, you know, as you're watching the skies, be sure to look around you as well, because, mm. you know, there have apparently, I don't have any, any information on these stories, but there have been apparently people who've seen all sorts of things during that CE5 space. So they've seen Bigfoot and they've seen cryptids and shadow foot figures and ghosts or things that we would say were that while, you know, they're actually doing this sky watching exercise. Um, Something else I would say is, you know, I've, I've heard of a couple of people who have been looking for Bigfoot and have gone out in the woods with more traditional, like sort of ghost hunting tools, like, you know, the, the spirit box and, you know, a pair of headphones and a blindfold so they can do the Estes method, which is always a fun time. <laughs> like, yeah. it's one of my favorite investigative methods. I also heard recently, and I need to look into this some more, about a team of Bigfoot hunters who went out and they basically had like somebody who had their thermal and their you know their parabolic mic and somebody who had their ghost gear and then somebody who had you know five dry grams of, of psilocybin <laughs> and a sitter you know and mm. and they all sort of did their investigation at the same time and i don't know if they really got anything worthwhile out of that but i think that's such an inspiring approach and if you can see that sort of same approach scattered across all the other disciplines i think it would be really interesting Suffice yeah. to say, I'm not I'm not encouraging anyone to do psychedelics in a haunted house. That sounds like a recipe for disaster. But but yeah. in the right setting, it kind of makes me wonder if that sort of interdisciplinary approach might yield right. some results that are completely unexpected and actually start to crack this crack this uh, nut open. Yeah, 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 yeah. Be mindful of set and setting there. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and I also thought that you know, knowing the 
story of the environment that you're in because like for example one of the things that you look at are you know the monuments and in north america the burial mounds and things like that and it seems to me that all of that would be important knowledge to take into account it, you know it, it, it is I, I would say that sometimes there is something to be gained from finding out about the history after the fact so it doesn't color your expectations Oh, okay, um, yeah. You know, I think that also is interesting when people are, I mean, you know, it's the classic ghost hunting thing. Like, you know, I saw a man with his arm off and I don't know why. And then you learn later that somebody lost their arm mm, yeah. <laughs> on site. Yeah. And that's always kind of provides an extra layer of corroboration. But at the same time, it does speak to the fact that that knowledge should be obtained at some point. And there are plenty right. of people who go in these places and leave again and they don't bother to really research like who owned the land at what point you know what was was there anything significant that happened around here you know and then you also sort of get this thing of like window area pareidolia especially you know as alluded to in the book like any post-colonial nation is just going to be covered in bloodshed and unmarked graves so right you know are you are you going to end up seeing things seeing patterns that are not there in terms of, of how you interface the landscape so i guess a buyer beware i suppose yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good points. Very good points. Yeah. And I'm always concerned with some of the ways we think about things because I think it does speak to some of our collective guilt, you know, like things like, you know, oh, this house is haunted because it's on top of an ancient burial <laughs> yeah. ground. And there are a couple of points in the book where I sort of wanted to rescue and, and, and rehab some of those ideas. That was one of them. There's another one that says that the, the fairies were a uh, a memory of a you know quote unquote more primitive race and it's like okay right. well this idea as it's been taken has a lot of problems and it's very problematic can we sort of salvage something from in there because i think yeah. that a lot of these ideas start out with good intentions and sort of get into the hands of some some bad actors who sort of use it to further their own unscrupulous agendas yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, I know that we are just about out of time. So let me ask you just one or so final questions. One is what are you working on next? And we can go a little bit longer if you want to, but I could walk away from all of this tomorrow and why I'm not, I kind of wonder, but mm -hmm. I feel like I've said my piece on this and that, that bothers me in a lot of ways because I've always felt that, you know, a mind made up is a mind that is brittle and you always need to be adjusting your thinking. You know, I think that religiously and politically and in terms of the, the paranormal as well. So I kind of am a little bit afraid by that of that, but at the same time, I think there is something to be said for providing a snapshot of the way that you conceptualize things and being right. like, okay, well, I don't know if this is going to adapt, but right now this works for me. Mm. And it works for me on a lot of these levels, not in terms of, of, you know, perceiving these phenomena holistically, but also just in terms of my own spiritual life. Like I've kind of sorted out through a lot of that. I mean, you might've, you might've caught onto this, but a lot of this book, these books um, are, there's a subtext, even though it's not, I don't think at all written from a Christian perspective, there's a subtext of me sort of working out how I fit this into my own <laughs> paradigm of belief. And again, it works for me. And I think it's a model that could work. And, you know, I guess the best thing that I could hope to see is that this idea of somehow being tied to death eventually stands up alongside ideas like the ultra terrestrial hypothesis, the interdimensional hypothesis, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, like that would be the, the biggest victory of victories for me. I found out yesterday, this is the first time I've talked about this, but I found out yesterday that there was an academic in New Zealand who had been 
experience of neurological wasting disease, I believe it was. And before his diagnosis, had a premonition of his death and had also seen a, a white bird, a rare white New Zealand bird in his garden a month to the day before he passed away. And in the article out of the blue, or in the, you know, this sort of an op-ed reflecting on this man's role in this, in the author's life, it mentions that the last book that he was reading was of all things, Ecology of Souls. And uh, that that's a heavy thing to, that's a heavy thing to process yeah. that someone in their last days was, was sort of living in your head. And I don't know quite how I feel about that. You know, I kind of wish that he was reading Tolstoy or, <laughs> or something else, you know, but I guess to a degree, I should expect that. And if the book provides solace for some people or, you know, heaven forbid, there's something in there that's objectively true that ends up helping guide them along that path. That's, that's a better legacy than I could have ever hoped for. So anyway, as far as what I specifically am doing, I would like to do more experiential stuff. You know, I alluded to my CE5, which was right on track for, with me being mostly a, a paranormal a kryptonite, you know, I've had some stuff happen, but it's always whenever I'm not looking for it. So I'd like to go looking for these things more often. And I have some, some opportunities lined up in the near future that hopefully will come together. So it's a little bit of that. I'm going to be working on some YouTube stuff coming up that I think will sort of help to get some of these ideas out there and uh, just trying to survive yeah. <laughs> is pretty much it for me for this foreseeable future. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it seems like it's so tricky to, you know, unlike haunted houses, you know, where there's a specific location for a lot of these, you just don't know. You just have to be in the right place at the right time, you know, which yeah, is I mean, its own kind of synchronicity. Well, you're in the right place at the right time, or you in desperation turn to some of these other alternative <laughs> unsanctioned yeah. methods that we alluded yeah. to. Yeah. 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 But they happen in interesting ways sometimes, I think. Yeah. And I think part of it is just setting yourself up. You know, it's, it's a lot like being a gigging musician. Like you set yourself up so that you can say yes to whatever call comes through the phone. Right. Right. And right. I think that, you know, it's putting yourself in a position where you can respond to whatever happens and, you know, be able to go to a certain place if something is going on or, you know, heaven forbid in the safest way possible, call something in. Although that's, you know, yeah, not always advised. <laughs> there yeah. was, there was a, a, a gentleman by the name of Jeff Ritzman who passed away about two years ago. And he had what he called was sort of a, he felt like it was as tried and true a method as you could get to sort of have an experience. And it was all about, you know, having a non-structured schedule of going out at random times to a specific isolated place and being alone or, or with a friend and, and thinking really deep questions and taking your mind off of these things, maybe even doing some stargazing. And then, he said that people who had applied this method about 60% of the time had something strange to them. But the two things that he took away were number one, it was never what they expected, right? So mm -hmm. if they expected they were going to see a Bigfoot, they saw a UFO or they, a ghost walked out of the forest or something. But the other thing was that, you know, this stuff can eat your lunch. It, it, it th being something that thrives on anti-structurality and sort of dwells in that liminal realm which again, if, if we're talking about death, that makes sense too. It kind of wants to to dismantle a lot of things in your life. If I can get a little bit <laughs> sinister about it, yeah, yeah. and uh, and you know, it's it's that it's that old thing of like you know, I go to a haunted location and I really want to take a rock home because I don't mind seeing a ghost in my house. But then you're like, well, if you look at your folklore and your mythology, like it's not just ghosts; it's loved ones getting cancer and financial ruin and mm. stuff like that as well. So yeah. as safely as I am able, I would like to reach out to these things, but uh, I'm going to try to keep them at arm's length as best as I can. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, and, and just go visit New Mexico. I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, there are some, there are some spots where it's just like, man, it's just, you know, yeah. everywhere you turn, it feels like there's something going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the only time I've ever seen UFOs, and these have just been lights in the sky. I can't say that they were crafts. Well, there's one exception down in Joshua Tree, but but for the most part, it's been New Mexico. There's something about New Mexico. There's a, I always say there's a spirit to the land. Well, and you know what I find interesting is like, maybe, maybe there's something about New Mexico for you. You know what I yeah, mean? Like, yeah. and then there's something about somewhere else for me and, you know, yeah, but be. yeah, you do, yeah, you do find these pockets here and there. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 I heard uh, this summer, I heard voices at Chaco Canyon too. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So New Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. All right. Well, Joshua, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciated it. This is my first kind of paranormal episode. So I was really excited to have you on. Well, I'm, I'm proud to, to occupy that space. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could talk to you for a lot longer. I think there's a lot going on in your book, but I know you're busy and I've got a class to get to this afternoon. All so. right. Fair enough. But thank you again. I really appreciate it. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. And that's a wrap on episode 56 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you're part of my YouTube audience or watch this on Spotify. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help, especially if you listen on Apple. If you have a minute to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review. Also, please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. Also, if you think a friend or family member or co-worker would like this podcast, please share it with them. Right now, that is one of the best ways to help me grow the podcast. I really do want to increase my audience. If you would like to support my work on Rebel Spirit Radio, I also have a PayPal link set up uh, if you'd like to make a one-time donation. And yes, you can still be the first person to do so. Uh, the first person who does make a donation to PayPal will get a special call out if you are okay with that. And you will also have my undying gratitude. You can find the PayPal link in the show notes or video description. I will also be launching a Patreon within the next few weeks, so keep tuned for updates on that. I have a lot of plans for Rebel Spirit beyond the Rebel Spirit radio podcast. I know I keep saying this, um, but I, I do want to create more video content for the YouTube channel, including more book reviews, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. I'm also planning some live stream episodes. Uh, the first will be with returning guest, Dr. Sharon Kogan, uh, where she will offer a Jungian analysis interpretation of dreams for participants. Uh, we recorded a preliminary uh, episode that will air before uh, we do the live stream. Uh, we're still working on scheduling the live stream, but it will likely be uh, sometime in November or possibly early December. So be sure to follow Rebel Spirit Radio on Facebook and or sign up for the newsletter at rebelspiritradio.com so you will be informed of all future live events. Implementing all of this is going to take a lot of time and resources, so anything you can do to help will be greatly appreciated. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio.
Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.